What if we told you that God could be seen in the most ordinary things every day? What if we told you that everyday ordinary events could teach us extraordinary eternal truths? Would you believe us? Hi, I'm BJ Seip, and I'm here with a very good friend and special guest, Hal Hammonds. We are both Christians, preachers, husbands, and fathers. Thank you so much for tuning in. We have a very special format for our podcast as we are branching out and doing something completely different than we have done before. In the past, we have had different guests on to do their little short essays and to share things that they've been learning, how everyday ordinary events have taught them different truths about God and His Word. But we want to do something completely different going forward. And we are going to start, beginning with today, once a month having a special guest, as we had announced, on this podcast to talk about their podcasting, to talk about the work that they're doing in the kingdom, and to give you more time to be spent listening to others as we are all seeking to set our minds to things above. And I could not be happier than having this guy on me for our very first special guest for this format. He is a, as we talked about just a second ago, he is a Christian, he is a preacher, he is a husband, he is a father, he is a podcaster, and he's my good friend, Hal Hammonds. Hal, thank you so much for tuning in regularly to this program, but thank you so much for being a part of this and being my first guinea pig for all of this. Thank you for coming. It is my honor and pleasure. You left out Astros fan, by the way. Now that's not something that we're going to promote. We'll probably edit that out later, but <laughs> we don't we don't have Astros fans on this on this page on this podcast. Okay. No, you know we bear with one another, and that's how I bear with you. That's all right. Um, well, how uh, our f- listeners are familiar with you because you know you have been a guest on this episode on this uh, podcast in the past, uh, just with your own short essays, but. We want to spend some time really getting to know you better because we've shortly introduced you, but let's just talk about you for a second. Why don't you take some time and just introduce us to who you are and where you're from and what you're doing right now? Well, uh, to start with, I am a native native to Central Texas. I grew up in Austin way back in the day and uh, moved back here. We're working in Georgetown, Texas now, just north of Austin, and uh, this is... 30 plus years, I guess now I've been preaching, married with two wonderful daughters, both of whom are, well, one's within easy driving range and one is right down the hall. So that's nice. Proud dog owner. Went to college at Texas A&M, another point of contention for me and BJ, I suppose. And uh, (laughs) graduated in the journalism school. Uh, Please hold your, your rocks and rotten tomatoes. And I was working in journalism a little bit and got an opportunity to preach full-time, and I took it. I'd been doing part-time preaching since, I think, junior year of college, and uh, had an opportunity to do it full-time. And with the exception of a three-or-so-year sabbatical in the middle of it, I've been doing it ever since. That's close to 30 years now. And when the podcasting thing started happening... 
I thought that this would be an interesting way to broaden my way of working. Well, let me, let me put it this way. When you're in your mid fifties or early fifties at the time, it's a real challenge to learn new skills. And I like to try to push myself uh, and, and force myself to adapt, force myself to, to stretch. Not always, but when I'm, <laughs> when my head's in the right space, when I really challenge myself, I like to, to push. And this was an opportunity for me to learn some new software skills and try to connect maybe with a, a younger generation and find another way to, to spread the gospel. And so, well, just over four years ago, four years and a couple of weeks ago, I started our, our podcast, which is the Citizen of Heaven. And every Tuesday for four plus years now, I've been putting a podcast out there, telling people what I have been preaching, what I've been reading, what I've been hearing, and what I've been playing. And I have found it to be a really good way to focus my energies, to get me excited about the work again. I have been doing this long enough where I have come to appreciate that there are ebbs and flows, that there are times when it's difficult to motivate yourself. And if I have an artificial way to shove myself back into the book, into work, into association with others, that can be a blessing to me. And, and I found it to be a, a really exciting way to, to stretch myself and to meet other people in the medium. And it's brought me in touch with BJ Sipe and any number of other <laughs> good podcasters and good people out there that have helped me in my work and hopefully helped me help others. I love that. Well, how your family is, is special. You know, we got to go out, uh, for those of you that are unaware, my wife and I and our youngest got to go out and, and like Hal reference, I I've known Hal just through the podcasting scene for the last, you know, couple of years, I guess at this point, but uh, we had the opportunity to actually meet in the flesh for the first time. Uh, and, and much to his dismay, I wasn't as short as he was hoping I would be <laughs> when we met in person. Uh, but that was such a special time for us to actually get to spend with you, to meet your family, to meet your wife, Tracy, to meet your daughters, uh, who have become, you know, friends with my wife. And that has been a blessing. So your family's a blessing. We love what you guys are doing out there. In Georgetown, we are are just so impressed with the church out there at Lakewoods Drive. And if you're ever in the Austin area, you need to hit Hal up. You need to to go and visit with the church there and, and worship with them and be a part of what they're doing out there. There's some special stuff that's going out on out there. And I'm just grateful for how God is using you in the kingdom in that area and continuing to use your family and, and to be a blessing in that that space. You know, as we as we talk about your podcasting and the citizen of heaven podcast, you have this really unique format that I've not seen in any other kind of podcast where you break it into, you know, four different sections generally mm -hmm. where you talk about what you've been preaching, what you've been reading, what you've been hearing. And then the last one, what you've been playing, we'll get there in a second. But when you talk about what you've been reading, Give us an idea, because most of the titles that you bring up in your podcasts, I've never heard of the book or, mm -hmm. or, or ever read the book. Um, 
And some of them I have, but you are an extraordinarily well-read individual. Your library is bigger than most, but how do you, how do you pick your books that you're reading? How do you find the time and what, what kinds of things generally are you pulled to that then you pull from to help you make spiritual connections? Well, I don't want to oversimplify this, but probably the most important factor is being able to get a book really, really cheaply. I, I'm, that may not be the most noble <laughs> sentiment you've ever heard, but uh, I love the discount rack. I love the the clearance section. Well, I'll go to the used bookstore. I'll go straight to the clearance section. I, I'm not opposed to paying half price for a book necessarily. Full price, unlikely, very unlikely. It, it's got to be basically a friend of mine if I'm going to buy a book at full price. I am looking at a particular shelf on my bookshelf that has, I think I counted 22 books that I am uh, waiting to read. That's one shelf. And then the shelf below it is another 15 or so, something like that. The The stack of books that I am getting ready to read is enormous and growing. But I have, this year especially, last year I read 36 books which I thought was ridiculous. I mean, surely far, far more than I have ever read in a year. I had never count, kept count before, but I put a list of 36 together that I'm, I'm pretty sure I read in their entirety last year. This year I have read 33 already. And uh, it's, it's, the podcast is the main reason why. It's, it's giving me insights into architecture or history or, or comedy or you know any number of other things that, grab my interest or at least enough interest to keep me occupied for two or three days while I'm reading this book. And it is reinforcing in my mind what I have known all along. One of the reasons that I started the podcast in the first place, that there is a way to contact spiritual things in these areas. If I'm reading a book about the war of 1812, for instance, well, let's see, that is uh, a war that was the sequel to the American revolution. And the reason it was fought is because the first war wasn't fought properly, according to this particular author. Well, I found that interesting. And, and maybe the average person out there might not think that six hours of reading so that you can have a five minute segment on your podcast is an efficient use of time. And I suppose if that was all it was, it wouldn't be an efficient use of time, but it's, it's not just that. Of course, I want to broaden my mind, broaden my understanding of various things for its own sake. And especially if I can find a little hook there saying, well, if I can learn in this area that I need to finish a job that was started the first place, well, I can turn that into a spiritual application and say, well, if I'm going to cleanse my spirit of some wickedness and leave a little bit of it left over to fester and grow and, and, fill the room up again, as it were, using Jesus' analogy from, from Matthew chapter 12, well, then I haven't finished the job. And so if I can get a lesson from that book just as easily as I could from some kind of inspirational literature or from the Bible itself, well, then why not go ahead and do that? I love that. And and I, I love your approach and how well-read you are. And, and what you're doing is really not that dissimilar <clears throat> from what we're trying to do with this podcast and, and you're able to arrive at the same conclusion that no matter what you're reading, you can pull 
spiritual lessons, spiritual truths out of the different things that you're approaching. It could be history, it could be comedy, it could be all these things. Um, and I really appreciate the the way that you approach what you're reading. There's there's no you know niche section that you get stuck on. You know you just allow things to kind of come in. And you take them and, and find how they fit into, you know, this big, you know, puzzle piece of life and how Christ has, you know, called for us to be, you know, thinking and living and and contemplate so many of these different things. And no matter where we're looking, you're going to find Christ. And right. I just love that you're able to take that and do that. But it's not just what you're reading. It's what you've been hearing. Mm-hmm. And so you, in part of your walk and part of your journey and setting your mind above you're constantly taking in different content from other creators, from other, you know, spiritually minded people. And so talk to me about that for a minute. What are the kinds of things or or who are the kinds of people that you find yourself drawn to that you would direct other people to, to say, Hey, there's, here's something that you should listen to. Here's something that you should be hearing as well. That's going to encourage you and help you in your walk spiritually. Well, uh, at the risk of flattering my host here, you know, there's uh, off, obviously a lot of very good podcast content, a lot of spiritual content that just pretty much hits the nail right on the head. There are not just uh, BJ's site, but I could list some others. <laughs> if I start listing my favorites, I'll lose somebody else. So maybe I'll not do that. But the <laughs> the idea of you know, leashing up my dog, I'm going to take her out to the mailbox. And before I do that, I'm going to stick my headphones in. I'm going to, I'm going to plug up a podcast. I'm going to listen to to something spiritual for, for five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever. And just even exposing myself to spiritual things on an ongoing basis is a, I'm not sure that that could possibly do any harm. You know, that's, that's got to be a, a good kind of thing. If you can put quality stuff in your ears on an ongoing basis that's a blessing and and i broaden that out you know much more than that it's in fact i really don't spend a whole lot of time talking about podcasting on my show i'll i'll talk a lot about about music for instance i i'm i wouldn't say that i am a a classical music buff but i i am drawn to it one of the very first decisions that I made when I was setting up the podcast is I wanted to do music bumps that were reasonably recognizable classics, uh, including and in particularly Beethoven's uh, Fifth Symphony, the opening uh-huh. movement of the fifth, which is the what I wake people up with when yep. <laughs> they click on my uh, on my show. It's not necessarily that classical music is better than any other kind of music, although I would argue in most cases it is it's a way into the human mind. It's a way of, and the more I understand about music, the more this, this works that music connects with the brain cells in a very special and chemical kind of way that puts us in a space that opens us up to ideas, opens us up to expressions. And it's not just that I am filling my, my head with good sounding stuff that doesn't have all kinds of nasty lyrics attached to it. Although that is a significant part of it. And there's all kinds of stories about about the scientists doing research about playing Mozart for your children when they're still in the womb. And I don't know how much to, to buy into that necessarily, but I do feel that putting yourself in a positive space, whether it's music or podcasting or, or whatever, putting yourself in a mentally positive space opens your mind up to 
to positive interactions and positive thoughts. And, and it's an uplifting sort of thing. It's an inspiring sort of thing. And it's bound to lead to good things in your life. Yeah. What, I mean, what you take in makes a huge impact on how you behave and our actions and, and the, the beliefs and norms and values that we end up forming in our lives. And, uh, you know, a huge part of that is going to be the content that is coming in through our ears, not just the content that we're taking in through our eyes on a regular basis. Right. You know, what are you listening to? What are the ideals behind what you're listening to? Um, and you get really technical with it when you start talking about the brain and music and all those kinds of things, which you're exactly right. Uh, one of the things that we talked about recently here, just in this group that I worship with, is we were talking about the impact of singing on our brains and What's really fascinating to me, and I'll, I'll get personal with it to prove this point. So my grandmother on my dad's side uh, has very severe Alzheimer's, and she does not know who I am for most of the time. Uh, like she knows who I am in general, but doesn't realize that that's me. Uh, and same with most of the rest of our members of our family. And when we visit with each other, it's not a normal visitation like you would with any other family member uh, because of her condition. But what's fascinating to me is we sing together. I'll start singing a song. She knows every word yeah. to that song and she can remember it because the brain where you store music is in a different part. It's not, a, it's not impacted by that. Yeah. And it's just incredible to me. And it's part of what makes me think in the context where we are told to, you know, sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right before that, we're told to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And you look at young kids, how do we teach kids the books of the Bible? Yeah, sing it to them. Yeah, we sing it. And that's how they retain it. Mm -hmm. And how do we remember so many of these stories in the Bible? Well, we we have songs about them. And there's something to be said for setting our minds above and, and the way that we are intaking, you know, spiritual truths and different things that God wants us to dwell on through music yeah, and, and through the different things that we are listening to. And so I, I, I love that section of your podcast and what you focus on. That kind of brings us to this, this last point, which is something that is very unique about you, Hal. Um, there are some people who like to collect things, you know, some people like to collect coffee bugs. Some people like to collect hats. You and your family like to collect board games. Yes. Uh, and for those of you that are unaware, I've been to Hal's house and, and Here he opened up this, this closet <laughs> <laughs> and, I thought that I had walked into the toy aisle of Target. I mean, I have never seen that many games stacked up in what would fill and overfill most double kitchen pantries. Some would say I have a problem, yes. <laughs> Some would say. But how in the world did you end up becoming the guy who plays and searches out every single kind of board game that's ever been made. And, and, and how do you keep up with that? I mean, just walk us through that process. 
Well, it begins when I realized how much money I was spending on DirecTV. It, it just got to be a ridiculous kind of thing. Tracy and I were talking about it and how, how we're spending all this money for not very much content, really. We like college football. There's the occasional movie that might pop up that we like. I think at that point, we still had one or two network shows that we were following and and not much more than that. And I'm paying $75 or whatever a month for this kind of content. What would happen if we turned off the, if we cut the cord and devolved into a very rudimentary form of conventional entertainment and took that money and put it into a different area, one that would encourage personal interaction with the family instead of sitting like zombies in front of a screen maybe we could be talking and laughing and sharing and we started I mean, start running the numbers and okay well i could spend $25 on a blu-ray disc and that is 2 hours 2 and a half hours worth of entertainment and maybe we'll watch this thing you know five or six times before we get bored with it and and I actually put a spreadsheet together and worked out the calculations. Of course you did. Of course I did. And I thought, well, you know, if I spent that $25 on a board game instead, and if all four of us, I had both daughters in the house at the time, if all four of us were engaged in this and we played this game five or six times or whatever, we are spending more and better quality time in this engagement than we would have with the other. And with, well, maybe we should just kind of invest in this and see what happens. And I, I came home from, uh, from a trip out of town, a preaching trip out of town. I came home with Sheriff of Nottingham, which is a tremendous game, uh, kind of a bluffing sort of game. It's not for everybody, of course, but my, one of my daughters is absolutely enamored of the Disney version of the Robin Hood story. And I thought, well, that's an easy connection. They'll play this game with me if I ask. And I'd heard that it was really good. And we just absolutely fell in love with this game. And and before too long, it was just buying this one and this one and this one and, and exploring different ways of entertainment. And we found out that despite what BJ may have said before, there are some games that just do not work at all for us. That, that <laughs> we, have, we have learned if it's this kind of a game, if it's played in this kind of a way, if it takes this amount of time or whatever, just don't even bother. Don't go down that road. And that's a trial and error thing. If you can fill up a closet with stuff that brings the family together and that creates stories that we tell of the, the time that we played five tribes together and, and Taylor spilled and, and ruined the game, we had to go buy another copy of it or something like that. You know, there are all kinds of stories that have developed around the gaming table. And my son-in-law, who you know very well, uh, Jake Combs, uh, he marries into the family. He's not really a gaming kind of guy or didn't think he was. And mm-hmm. he, we kind of bring him gradually into the hobby and he's ex- as excited as anybody else is now. And it's just an opportunity to spend quality time with quality people. And it creates a lot more positive interaction, I think, than just chatting about, you know, the last episode of Yellowstone or, you know, whatever it happens to be that people are talking about these days. Sure. So what I'm hearing is it's it's not really about the games. It's not that, you know, you're such a huge fan of board games that, you know, you just have to collect as many as you can. That really this started with you thinking about my family needs to spend more time together, yeah. that we need to do something different than just sit in front of a TV 
and you know mindlessly waste hours of our evening together not interacting not engaging and you have found a way to bring your family together to make memories to have discussions to be together and and to form that kind of special bond between parent and children by doing this right and it works the same way with like you were saying before with the books I have found that it's not very difficult at all to to find a hook with a particular game that, you know, this was a positive experience and this is why. And that lets me talk about this particular subject from the book of Colossians or whatever, or or the other way around. This was a total disaster. This is why we don't like this kind of game or whatever. There, there's always a way to connect it back to Jesus. There's always a way to connect it back to the gospel if you're inclined to look for that. And I have spent the better part of 30 years doing that. My writing is largely focused on this kind of, of application. Uh-huh. You know, this happened to me on the way to the grocery store and it made me think about Psalm 8 or whatever. There's there's a way to tie these things in if you put your mind deliberately in that space and if you are acquainted enough with the Bible to make the connection. And, and those are two very important parts of that. You got to read your Bible with all the reading that I'm doing. You got to read your Bible too. But you also have to like pardon the expression, set your mind above, dwell in this spiritual space, the Deuteronomy 6 kind of space, where it is a habit for me as an individual and for me as the head of a family to go to this place. Everything that I see has to do with the Bible. Everything that I see has to do with God. Everything I see has to do with heaven in some fashion. And by trying to find that connection I deepen my relationship with God, my relationship with the word. Hopefully I find a way to communicate that message in an effective way so that somebody out there says, Hey, you know, I hadn't thought about that. And, and maybe they draw closer to God that way. They draw closer to the word. They're encouraged to read the Bible more, et cetera. That is, is kind of the, the mindset behind this entire process at least. Right. So if you didn't believe that everyday ordinary events could teach you extraordinary eternal truths, Mm -hmm. You need to tune in to Hal's podcast because he can take a game about people, you know, collecting sushi and mm-hmm. turn it into, uh, is that Sushi Go? Is that what we played? We played Sushi Go. It's, a, sushi it's Go. a terrific game. And you could, and, and, and Hal has found a way to take even something like that and teach something spiritual from it. And, and all of it starts with exactly what he just said. It's learning to train ourselves to one, we need to be intaking the word on a regular basis. And then we need to be dwelling on the word. And that, that's not necessarily in the form of that we're constantly thinking about and trying to memorize scripture, but it's in the form of if you're intaking the word, that as you go through life, that you're going to find ways that it brings you back to the word. And it reminds you of the truths that we have read and allowed to be built up into our heart concerning God, concerning his son, concerning his spirit, concerning his people. I'm looking forward to, I'm going to do my best, I think, in the future, especially given what you do with your podcast. I'm going to try to find the most obscure, insane games that I think there's no way Hal can take something and twist it. And I'm just going to send it your way and see what you can come up with. If you pay for it and you mail it, I will play it. That's right. How famous tightwad. As long as you pay for it, I'll play it. I love That's it. That's right. <laughs> well, your podcast, you've been doing it for four years now is what you've said, right? Mm-hmm. Just a little over four. Four years. And uh, you have had an opportunity to 
bring different guests on there. Uh, my wife and I have both been honored to be on there and to be a part of your program. And uh, there are many others that you have been able to bring on to discuss these things and be a part of the efforts that you're bringing in. Let me ask you this question uh, as we talk about you know your specific podcast in general. If you were going to boil everything down to you know kind of like one phrase or or one sentence, what is your overarching goal that you hope to accomplish behind the work that you're doing in a podcast scene? And if and this is a pitch, if you're trying to you know help others that are listening to this understand you know how they could benefit from tuning in, being a part of what you're doing, and and helping them to set their minds on things above. What is it that your overarching goal is behind the work that you're doing? Well, I think it goes back to the very beginning of my thought process. I mentioned Beethoven's Fifth a few minutes ago. I came up with the title Citizen of Heaven in about five minutes. I think it's kind of catchy, and it really went to the heart of what I was trying to do, what I thought I needed to do, and that is to change my brethren's mentality away from simply being a member of society who happens to be a Christian and happens to go to this particular building on this particular hour of this particular day. Get away from that mentality and see yourself as a true citizen of heaven, someone who is estranged from his proper abode. I try to force myself into this kind of mentality from time to time because you have to do it. You, you have to force. It's not going to be natural unless you're just in a remarkable headspace. Uh, I don't find it natural at all because we are surrounded by real and tangible things all the time. We see them on the TV. We see them at Walmart. We see them driving down the highway or whatever. There are things that exist in physical space that impact us every hour of every day. And the natural thing is to define ourselves by those things in our interactions with those things. Mm -hmm. And Jesus calls us to do exactly the opposite. We are told that we belong in heavenly realms, that this is a way station. This is a trial for us on our way to something different, something better. That is something that we can only accept by faith and only accept deliberately and, and through conscious choice, repeated choice. And if I can do a little something to encourage me and maybe somehow somebody else to look at ourselves as lights in the world or salt in the earth or strangers and pilgrims or whatever Bible image you want to use, if we can look at ourselves as being displaced, as not fitting in, not trying to fit in, then maybe what we see on the TV or the, the road rager that we run across at the, at the stop sign or whatever it happens to be, we can start putting that in a spiritual framework and stop seeing ourselves as Republicans or Democrats, uh, as young people, old people, Texans, you know, whatever, mm -hmm. get away from or at least partially get away from our carnal affiliations and start defining everything in our life in terms of the spirit. That is a, a transition that a lot of my brethren, I think, are not even aware of, let alone successful at. 
I don't know that my preaching has always emphasized this in times past, but I'm trying very much, especially when I watch the news. And when I say watch the news, I mean become aware of the news because I don't watch the news. The more you are aware of the frailties and the faults and the, the poison that is in the world around us, our immediate knee-jerk reaction should be, boy, I can't wait till heaven. And I don't mean to dismiss any kind of obligation or opportunity that I might have to have an impact on my surroundings, because I think there is something to that. I can have some kind of impact, at least on my family and maybe on a few others also. But give up on this idea of fixing the world, which has been broken from the garden and will continue to be broken. Get away from fixating on whether or not we can fix this economic problem or this social problem or, or this personal relations problem or bring the, the, the races together, or fix nuclear warfare and you know, all kinds of problems that we're dealing with these days. More, another problem every day seems like instead of trying to fixate on finding solutions for those things, spend that kind of energy in spiritual places. I'm not saying don't go vote. I'm not saying don't support good things or noble things in this world because what few of them are out there need all the support we can give them. But don't define the success or the failure of your day or of your year or of your life based on whether we did or did not abolish abortion or how we handle the transgender issue or, or whatever. I am a child of God in a wicked place, in a wicked world. And my job is to prove myself to be a little bit worthy, at least not, not completely worthy, but at least somewhat worthy of the grace that has been given to me in this life. He who is faithful in a little thing is also faithful in much, Jesus says. So whatever little thing I have, whether it's a podcast or whether it is a, a bank balance or whatever it is, use that to the glory of God. Use that to show yourself to be a citizen of heaven instead of a citizen of the earth. It sounds like you're saying, number one, that we need to put our Christ lens on to see the events and things of this world through rather than vice versa. You know, right. so many pe people will look at, you know, Christ through a political lens, or they will look at Christ, you know, through any other kind of, a, you know, thing that they have chosen to give them identity ahead of Christ, right. you know, and, and, and almost that Christ is put on the same playing field, you know, well, I'm a, a duck fan, or, you know, I'm a Texas A&M fan, I'm, I'm an Aggie uh, and I am a you know Republican, or I am a Democrat, and I am a Christian, as though those are all on the same playing field. And it's no, 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 no. I am a Christian. I am a citizen of heaven. My home is not of this world, and these things are all going to go away. These yeah. things are all minuscule in their importance and in their place. And while they're good and fine and okay in their space. And in their own place, we need to recognize that how we are to view them and view one another is through the lens of Christ. You right. know, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We are all made one in Christ Jesus. We embrace one another, and there are things that just have no place in the kingdom of God yeah. uh, as taking our identity yeah. and dividing us. Um, so that's one thing, but it sounds like the other thing that you're really focusing in on 
is to not try to make heaven on earth through earthly means. Yeah. In the name of justice or in the name of righteousness, oftentimes we can approach those things uh, through methods and methodologies that are nothing like Christ or the way that he dealt with these matters. Um, And like you said, there's nothing wrong with going out and voting. There's nothing wrong with, you know, supporting some cause or, you know, being involved in some kind of a, you know, charity. These are all good things. Uh, We are called to do good for others. and, And it's in the ways that we do good that others will see that light and glorify our Father who is in heaven. So, so we're not suggesting that, and neither are you suggesting that. But it seems like you're suggesting to not use earthly means to bring about heavenly results. Yeah. This is the way I boil it down. I, I greatly fear that many of our brethren have fallen in love hmm. with their prison cell. And that we are obsessed with making our mattress softer and our pillow fluffier and our view better and our floor cleaner and our neighbors quieter and our warden kinder and all of these kind of things. When what we, what we ought to be doing is spending every single moment of every single day dreaming about going home, about getting out of here hmm. and going to a different place. I, I think that we have become very complacent with regard to our existence here on earth just making the best of it here. I, I don't want to make the best of it here. I want to leave here and do whatever I need to do to leave here. Mm. I mean, Paul, in his words to the Philippians, says to live as Christ and to die as gain. And he would go on to say that, you know, to be mm-hmm. with Christ is far better. There was no comparison. There was no question about that in Paul's mind, that going to where we belong, which is with our Father in our heavenly home that he has gone and promised to us and has prepared for us. Why wouldn't that be what our mind is on consistently? Why wouldn't that be what we spend our time devoted to and focusing on? I mean, uh, all of these other things pale in comparison to eternity and what Christ has prepared for us. And it's so easy for us to become distracted. I I say this regularly, and I'm sure that I have talked about this in our podcast here. It's the parable of the sower. And Jesus spends time talking about these four different soils that represent four different hearts. And I'm convinced and convicted that many times in my life, I have been the third soil. And the third soil is the the seed that is sown among the thorns. But because of the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches or comfort, it chokes the plant, it chokes the, the word, and fruit is not produced. And so we have a lot of, you know, yeah. times in my life, and I think in our lives as Christians, where we're not producing fruit, and it's because we're not acting like citizens of heaven. We're so busy living for the here and the now, and we're distracted, and we're chasing comfort. We're chasing the things of this world. We're not setting our minds on things above. We're not living like citizens of heaven. And as a result, we're not doing the work that God has called for us to do. We're being focused on what is to come. This is a really good segue into what we want to spend the rest of our time talking about, and that is going to be our our greatest struggles 
with setting our minds on things above and the things that help us the most to do that before we let you uh, share, you know, a story with us. But what you and I do and your overarching goal behind the work that you're doing are very similar. You know, we can really kind of interchange these. And so I can ask the same question. If I were to ask what's the greatest struggle with setting our minds on things above, really what I'm asking also is what are our greatest struggles with living as citizens of heaven? You know, those are really kind of interchangeable. And so as you think about that, what are things that you have found maybe even personally or as a general whole in the lives of Christians that you've been involved with as you have preached for so many years? What are some of the greatest struggles that you find that we deal with that get in the way of setting our minds on things above or living as citizens of heaven? I think maybe the biggest thing might simply be a lack of interest in growing, in developing. I think that we can, especially second, third, fourth generation Christians, and by that I mean, you know, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, et cetera. I I don't know anything other than this environment. This is what I do with my Sundays. Not to speak ill of any of that. That's a wonderful thing. That's where I am. That's that's my life. I do think, though, that we can get very comfortable, very complacent with a, if you'll pardon the expression, a country club kind of attitude toward church, that we wind up effectively setting very, very low bars for ourselves. We think that as long as I don't rebel against my culture, then I'm doing okay. Hey, a lot of people rebel against the culture, but I I don't want to feed this notion that somehow if you live your life and you never get withdrawn from by the local congregation and you never get a divorce and you never commit a felony and, and maybe even your children grow up and get baptized, that we can just kind of declare victory and depart the field because things seem on the surface to have turned out well. We checked all of the relevant boxes. And we don't look at our life in Jesus as being a growth process, a personal development process, a war against the evils of the soul, etc. There is always room to grow. There is always room to develop And there should always be a desire to do so. When we find ourselves wrestling with our brethren, almost physically, almost literally, to get them to come to the church house on a Wednesday night for for Bible classes, or when you see Bible after Bible left in the pews on Sunday afternoons with the clear implication that they're not going to need that for another week, the impression can be left, accurately or incorrectly that Christians aren't really engaged in this life process, in the idea of spending a lifetime finding ways to serve Jesus. I I think of Ephesians 5.10 as being the, the Christian life in 10 words or less, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. That's, that's it. You know, I'm actively engaged. Could I do this a little bit more? Could I do this a little bit less? Or maybe a lot less. The desire to grow, the desire to develop, I think is lost 
on an awful lot of Christians. I probably have never gotten in trouble for anything in local churches more than hmm. this topic. Urging people to get better at hmm. what they're doing. Uh, there are some people who have no intention of getting better. They don't desire to get better. They want to be right. left alone. You know, they have found their comfort level and they're going to stay there. And if the preacher comes along or the elders come along and prod them a little bit, mm-hmm. they're going to resent it. I don't know what I can do about that attitude. Probably nothing. But at least I can do this. Say there is another way. There is a better way. And if God chooses to have mercy on you in your state, then God bless you for that. I'm certainly not trying to do his job. But wouldn't it be preferable for us to grow in all aspects, all aspects unto him. Uh, surely halfway there isn't good enough. We shouldn't want it to be good enough. I was reminded of a statement uh, that I saw on social media earlier today, and it said, being held accountable may feel like an attack if you're not ready to acknowledge how your poor decisions impact others. And that sounds exactly like the response that you were describing uh, for many Christians. What you're saying, I think, is really powerful in that it mirrors exactly the way that Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount. You know, you go to Matthew chapter 5, and uh, Mike Estes, who preaches alongside with me here uh, in Danville, has been going through and talking about the Beatitudes. And what he's pointed out is the progression here. You know, Jesus begins with this idea of, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, if you don't recognize your need for total dependency upon God. If you think that you're pretty good, you know, that you you don't really need God as much as others need God, uh, then you are never going to become who God needs you and wants you to be. Uh, you need to get to the point where you recognize your spiritual depravity and your need for total, complete dependency upon God. And then you need to mourn. If you don't, if you don't mourn your sin... If you don't recognize the, the, the evil that we've done and you're not moved to change when you examine your life and you're just kind of comfortable, you know, where you're at, you know, pardon the, the kind of crude analogy, but it's the old expression of, you know, a toddler that doesn't want to change his dirty diaper. And you're like, you know, what, what's the problem? Like you've got poop sitting in your diaper. Like, let's change that. No, it's, it's warm and it's mine. And I want it, you know, <laughs> keep it this way. And, uh, so often yeah. we're like that toddler yeah. who runs from mom or dad, which I know nothing about at all having three young children at home. Um, but because they just, they want to keep it. It's, it's warm and it's theirs. Um, we have to learn to mourn our sin. And then you have to be meek, humble enough to receive instruction from God. But it's when you get to that point that you can hunger and thirst for righteousness, like you were implying at the beginning. We're just not interested. Well, we can't be interested in becoming a citizen of heaven. We can't be interested in setting our mind on things above if we don't see our desperate need for Christ and see him as the only source to meet those needs and recognize that we need his grace and his forgiveness. But when you recognize that he is the source for those things that we so desperately need, that will produce in us, hopefully the kind of desire that you're describing to do what we're called to do and to set our minds on things above and live as a citizen of heaven, because that's really what all 
Jesus is talking about here. He's saying this is what kingdom people look like. This is what citizens of heaven act like and behave like. They are poor in spirit. They mourn their sin. They are meek and humble. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And as a result, they're going to be merciful towards others and pure in the intentions of their heart and ultimately seek to be peacemakers between not just them and man, but others and God as ministers of reconciliation. And you'll notice that most of those, if not all of those attributes that Jesus talks about there are in direct opposition to what the world typically values. Those are the kinds of things that I don't want to do. That's the kind of character that I don't want to have. I won't get what I want if I do those things. Well, if you're looking at the world through fleshly eyes, if you're trying to maximize your life here on earth, you're right. This is, this is a recipe for disaster. This will never get you to where you want to go. But if you have this kingdom mentality, if you are living for heaven, this counterintuitive approach will work. You may or may not acknowledge that in the moment. You may kick against the goad for a while. But if you will submit to Jesus, if you will trust that his way is best, and, and live the way he told you to live the way he lived, you will find it bearing fruit in your That's life. That's right. Absolutely. 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. So obviously there are going to be lots of struggles that we have to overcome as we seek to become citizens of heaven, as we seek to set our minds on things above. But let's switch gears a little bit because it's not all bad. There are so many things that God has done to help us and to bless us and and to make this, you know, God does not desire seeking him to be some kind of impossible task and unattainable goal. You know, actually the promise from Christ is seek and you will find knock and the door will be opened unto you ask and it will be given to you. So when you talk about living like a citizen of heaven or setting our minds on things above, what are the things that you have found that have been of the most benefit to you in helping you? to do that. I think maybe the biggest thing is finding a way to redefine joy. You know, Philippians talks over and over again about joy and and Paul clearly is a joyful person. He is living a life of joy. He's encouraging other people too as well. And the average person looking at Paul's life and Paul's circumstances and Paul's trials is left kind of scratching their head. He's I don't think that Paul's firing on all eight here. This this doesn't seem reasonable. Well, again, from an earthly perspective, maybe it's well, it's not. It's there's it's insane from an earth, earthly perspective. But if you can find joy where Jesus has placed joy, if you can take delight, genuine emotional delight in spiritual things, in service, in sacrifice, in growth, things of that nature, moral excellence. If you can learn to pat yourself on the back and genuinely congratulate yourself for self-control and patience, realize that you are becoming more like Jesus every day. That is a wonderful feeling. Uh, not a feeling that I have every day, to be perfectly honest, but it is a feeling that I aspire to. 
and one that if I put myself in good circumstances, if I listen to BJ Sipes podcast and things like that, I am encouraged to dwell on. I'm encouraged to value, including if necessary, changing my own behavior patterns, changing my own preferences and such so that I can be more like Jesus, so that I can put spiritual things first, so that I can set my mind above. When you look at your life and and realize that it's pointing in the right direction, and you, this is true in a carnal sense too, if you can look at your life in the big picture and not think so much about whether I had a good day or not, not think so much about whether my tummy is full right now or anything like that, but rather my life is on a trajectory that by any reasonable estimation will wind up in a good place where I want to be. There is a very satisfactory feeling that comes over you in that moment. And people of the world get that, uh, the smart ones anyway, the the forward-thinking ones, understand the idea of long-term, big-picture joy. What we need to do as, as children of God is take that to the next level and realize that whatever kind of so-called joy we might see on the horizon in this life is nothing compared to what's waiting for us in heaven. And if we can take that same principle of self-denial and long-term thinking and big picture and, and point that toward Jesus, point that toward heaven, every day, whether it's a good day or a bad day, every hour of every day, is seen as part of this big experiment, of this big enterprise on our part that does not, and this is the icing on the cake for us here, that does not depend on my own personal ability, my own personal uh, good fortune or, or whatever. Jesus is driving this boat, and I am going to get where I want to go because I have let him drive. He is not my co-pilot. He is my only pilot. And I can rest secure in that place. I can sleep in the bottom of the boat, no matter what's going on in the world around me. That is a a feeling that makes all the difference in the world. And it will get you away from the idea of hoping that good things happen, even good spiritual things, as far as that goes. If I can see my life as a total, my life as a whole pointing toward heaven, that relieves a lot of the stress that's involved with hoping that good things happen today sure. or this year. Or so whatever. really you're getting back again to the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning of what Jesus says in, in that word blessed. Yeah. You know, a lot of times there's very poor translations that mm-hmm. will say happy, you know, happy is the, you know, are those who mourn, yeah. you know, which is a oxymoron, but um, happy is not the right term there. Happiness is really rooted and based in, our circumstances on very current, you know, what's happening immediately in the moment kind of circumstances. Blessed is something different. You know, blessed is in line with what James would write when he would say, count it all joy when you face various trials. And that's really what you're getting at here. How do, how do right. I experience joy? You know, a level of, of contentment and peace and having this kind of mentality, even through the ebbs and flows of this life and the difficult things of our immediate physical circumstances. And it really kind of gets back to, you know, where we set our minds, how we see ourselves as citizens of heaven. If I'm living for this life, then the circumstances of this life are going to have a great impact on how I feel, 
on how I see myself, on the way that I, what I pursue and how I live. But if I see myself as mm-hmm. my life, as the, the things here now are, are inconsequential and temporary compared to what's coming, then things could all go south at different times, but it doesn't take away the hope and the joy and what is waiting for me. Or if things all go great, I don't put my trust and my identity in those things. That's not where I find my joy because I recognize those are going to go away too. One of the the books that really helped me formulate my thinking as far as this kind of thing goes, one of the carnal books, secular books that I read was uh, Seven of the Seven Habits of yeah. Very Effective yes. People. I forget the title exactly. Stephen Covey. Anyway, it's uh, this idea of moving your your vision of your life away from your circumstances and toward your ideals, toward your goals. And when you when you're not sure where your next meal is coming from, when you're not sure if you're going to be able to come up with rent, when your children are on drugs, you know the living room is on fire right now. It's extraordinarily difficult to set your mind above, as it were. But, and <laughs> my response to this is not very satisfying, I'm sure. I, I don't have a better answer than this, but you've got to find a way to do it. Because if you continue, if you persist in governing your life, governing your day-to-day behavior based on the obstacles that are right in front of you, you're never going to make the next jump. You're just never, ever going to do it. You have to find a way, get help, get, you know, consult with, with your, your preacher, your elders, your, your godly friends, whatever. You have to find a way to start setting your mind on things that are above. Maybe it means completely surrendering any hope that you're ever going to be able to pay off your house. Maybe it means surrendering any idea of sending your kids to college or at least paying for sending your kids to college or whatever, which is a very Uh easy thing for me to say, obviously. Very easy for me to call shots for total strangers like this. But at some point, you have to decide where your focus is. And if you can make that one really, really hard decision and stick with it, Jesus will help all these other things fall into place. It seems like that's what he means in Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his kingdom. All the rest will be added to you. You you make the only decision that really matters. You make that one decision right. And trust me for the rest of it. If we can get away from the idea of measuring our life based on how much money we have or based on how full our plate is or, or whatever it happens to be. If we can accept what Jesus offers, however much or however little that is, with food and clothing there with to be content, Paul tells Timothy. If we can get to that place and content ourselves with lack or absence or whatever, because heaven is our home, and, and that that's going to be fine. That's going to be good. I've, I have that locked up. Jesus has that locked up for me. Then that can give us that sense of contentment. That can give us that sense of joy, even when the living room is on fire. We're going to be okay. We're going to get through this. I realize that is a very, very easy thing to say when your living room is not on fire. I, I get that. I appreciate the conflict of interest here, but that doesn't mean right. it's not true. <laughs> it doesn't mean that, that it's not what Jesus is trying to get at here. We could just spend the rest of our time reading Philippians 4, and every single thing that you just shared mm-hmm. is going to be touched on in that passage, in that chapter. 
you know, and, and to summarize the whole thing, you know, Paul is talking about this idea of giving things up to God, your anxieties, the things that you're concerned about through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, you let your requests be made known to God. And that when you do that, the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. And instead, in the meantime, while you give those things up to God, this is what you do. You make a decision and you you emphasize that, that it's not that we have no control over our thoughts. You have to make a decision. You can control and choose what it is that you dwell on, what it is that you think about, what it is that you are concerned with. And that's what Paul says. You, you meditate, you consider that which is good, that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is just. This is what I'm going to set my mind on and see myself through and focus on. And when those things take place, that's when eventually we can become content, as he talks about later in the, the rest of this chapter. Uh, I've learned the secret to becoming content. I've, I've learned the secret to having plenty or to being brought low. And that is that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He is sufficient. He is enough. This is where I'm going. That's right. And it is a secret. It is mind boggling to people on the outside that that can't possibly work. Yeah, I can. You don't get it. Now I understand. I understand why you don't get it, but it's true. Right. It really will work. Absolutely. Well, Hal, this has been so much fun to get to have you on to be uh, my first guest on this program and to talk about these kinds of things. But as we have done in the past, we're going to go ahead and work towards wrapping this up. And what we want to do is I know that you have prepared some thoughts and, and some ideas uh, on a recent event that you've had that taught you a spiritual truth, something that directed your mind to that which is above and helped you to consider how this impacts you as a citizen of heaven. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just end this podcast by turning the floor over to how, and if you are familiar with this program on a regular basis, this is going to be the kind of format that you're used to hearing, uh, but from a voice that you're not used to hearing. And so how thank you for sharing your time with us today. If you have not tuned in yet to the citizen of heaven podcast, you can find that on all streaming platforms I would encourage you to not only follow Hal's podcasting, but to follow Hal's preaching. You know, go to uh, the Lakewoods Drive Church of Christ webpage, listen to the preaching of Hal and the way that he brings the the Word of God from the pulpit to you as a as a, a fellow saint and citizen of heaven. And I know that what he has to share and the work that he does will be of benefit to your life and will help to bear fruit in your walk with Jesus. So do those things. How thank you for sharing your time with us today, and we'll, we'll turn the rest of this time over to you. Jury duty is an honor and a privilege. I believed that even before the nice lady at the courthouse handed me $6 in cash just for showing up. My whole life, I have heard adults grousing about having to take off work to go. Strange, since usually these same people can't quit complaining about their job during their free time. And the court gave us all an official document proving that we were just doing our civic duty, not out fishing or golfing, so there shouldn't be any trouble with the boss. And, hello, $6. I brought my Bible with me. You never know when a conversation might start. And in any case, I was determined to get a Sunday evening sermon idea out of my experience. 
To that end, I made sure to bring my notebook along as well. I wanted to jot down everything that came to mind during the process. More on that in a bit. Quickly, we realized what sort of day and potentially what sort of week we were in for. The defendant, who was there in front of us in the well of the court, was being accused of continual sexual assault of a child. I will spare you the details of the charge, although the attorneys did not offer us that courtesy. Suffice it to say that it is just about the most despicable act you can imagine a grown adult doing to a preteen. This was a Friday. The judge said the selected jurors and alternates likely would be tied up with this case from the next Monday until that Thursday. Four solid days of the worst humanity has to offer. It got worse. Because of the nature of the proceedings, we did not hear any real evidence. But the questions asked by the prosecution and the defense left little doubt as to the circumstances of the crime. It seems the defendant allegedly committed crimes against a young family member on some sort of family vacation. It happened, again, allegedly, more than once, and over a period of more than a month. At this point, several of the members of the jury pool said they could not possibly judge a case such as this objectively. Personal experiences or experiences of close friends or family members would keep them from giving a fair hearing to the evidence. Obviously, that could be an easy way to get your week back. Just make up a sob story and out you go. But I think these people were sincere. And if they were, I certainly don't blame them for wanting out of the courtroom as quickly as possible. Believe it or not, it actually got worse than that. The attorneys spent a great deal of time focusing on the one witness rule. That is to say, the circumstances under which it would be appropriate to convict someone of a crime if the victim and the perpetrator were the only ones there. Translation, it was going to be he said, she said. No corroborating evidence was going to be presented. No DNA, no hidden cameras, no diary entries, no blue dress from the gap. And to cap it off, we were led to believe that the victim waited between five and ten years to report the crime. And in the time before charges were filed, she flatly denied more than once that anything happened. An incorrect guilty verdict and an innocent man goes to prison as a child molester for at least 25 years. An incorrect not guilty verdict and a young person was going to be forced to share a Thanksgiving table with his or her rapist. How's that for pressure? I didn't write any of that down in my notebook. I didn't figure there was any way I would forget any of that. It turns out I was right. This is what I wrote. This is all I wrote. The defendant was scruffy. That's it. The defendant was scruffy. Maybe that sounds like I wasn't taking the matter seriously or that I was thinking about using it as a starter for a macabre short story. No, it was just the one detail in the whole proceeding that didn't seem to fit. Here's a man on trial for his life. Surely he's trying to make a good impression with the 12 men and women who will determine the course of the rest of his life. He didn't wear a suit like his attorneys. That's not so bad. Lots of people don't wear suits. Maybe his handlers thought a suit would make him look unrelatable. What do I know? But he didn't shave. His shirt was unbuttoned at the top, and his necktie was loose. He looked, to me anyway, 
like someone putting on an act of respectability and doing it poorly. I need to emphasize at this point, I didn't shave that morning either. I was at least as scruffy as he was, and probably more so. But his circumstances and my circumstances were, to put it mildly, different. I was not concerned about juror number 26 reading something into my appearance and deciding I did sort of kind of look like a pedophile. I honestly believe I could have heard the evidence and rendered a fair and honest verdict in the case, had I been called upon to do so. As it stands, maybe it's just as well I wasn't. I said a lot of prayers that weekend for all the parties involved, including and especially the jury, and I'm still praying for them, regardless of how the verdict went. The thought I could not get out of my mind, the thought that still lingers there, is this. How many silly, pointless impositions would I be willing to endure if I thought they could save my life? How minuscule would they have to be for me to dismiss them? If I were told one of my books would blow up if opened, would I quit reading? Or would I assume one or two good ones in a stack of hundreds surely would not matter? If I heard a rumor that a burglar lived in our neighborhood, would I leave the door unlocked while walking the dog, even for five minutes? And if those stakes are high, surely eternity is even more so. Jesus spends half of Matthew chapter 5 discussing how much is too much scenarios. He sets the stage in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He sharpens the point in verses 29 and 30. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. And surrounding these verses, he gives all sorts of practical applications. Don't just avoid murdering your brother. Avoid even speaking angry words to him. Don't just avoid adultery. Avoid lust. Don't just be faithful in your vows. Avoid any falsehood at all. Quit being concerned about perhaps being too patient, too cooperative, too generous, too loving. Show as much of these godly attributes and any others you can think of as frequently and as voluminously as you can. People are watching, and more importantly, God is watching. If your personal preferences have to take more of a shave than you think should be necessary, remember the consequences of this judgment going the wrong way. Then shave twice. Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. And again, thank you to Hal Hammonds for joining us on today's podcast. I would invite you back every Thursday for a brand new episode each week. If you haven't already, be sure to find us on Facebook for future announcements or even some special video sessions. If you have benefited from this podcast, share it with someone else that you think would benefit from it also. Until next time, know that I love you, that Hal loves you, that God loves you. And may we all each and every day set our minds above.